0: You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 234 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. This is the second episode of a four part series recorded at the Third World Ayahuasca Conference in Girona, Catalonia, Spain, organized by IceEars. Let's begin. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the uh, third edition of the World Ayahuasca Conference. (laughs) Welcome to the uh, third edition of the World Ayahuasca Conference.
0: Which, you know, things like this conference, things like ayahuasca, Do encourage people to at least be concerned about Amazonians, who are generally disregarded uh,
2: worldwide. The human species, which I sometimes call the stupid monkeys, uh, are not listening to the message, which is that we have to re-understand our relationship with nature. Right now, the public education is the most important thing. Very
1: little research is conducted in a dialogue with indigenous Amazonian people. The extraction never stops. The extraction never stops.
3: Viva los pueblos indígenas de la cuenca amazónica. Yeah!
0: There are many living psychonaut legends walking around the conference and I got to talk to a few of them. One in particular, Rick Doblin, is the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as MAPS. Now I did this interview together with this other journalist and that is why you sometimes hear someone else ask, questions in addition to the questions I had myself. Thanks for being on the podcast.
2: Oh, my pleasure. I think right now the public education is the most important thing because we're getting regulatory approvals. We don't have all the money we need, but we're getting the most of the money. We'll probably get the rest of it, and then we also are training a lot of therapists. So now I think it's really public education to prepare people to educate them so when we move more expansively out of research into treatment that people are ready so I'm really glad to be talking to you now
0: so what kind of research is being done uh, concerning ayahuasca at the moment well there's world yeah
2: there's basically two different kinds there's one kind which is called mechanism of action where you try to understand how it works and what it is doing the brain and then there's another which is actually working in patients and trying to see how it works so the main work in patients has been uh, for depression and that was showing promise uh, done in Brazil. Then there's also sort of ethnographic research about the religious use and how that's expanding and what, that, um, what people report about that both in a religious context but what it does for them with uh, substance abuse or depression or anxieties. Uh, what's not happening yet is trying to take ayahuasca through the regulatory system to make it into a medicine and so there's a bunch of different issues is that appropriate should we take something out of the amazon and say we don't need this um, we need to approach it with respect but it doesn't need a religious context can we medicalize it and i just had a conversation with someone today who was very prominent in the religious use and he said he's not sympathetic with making it into a medicine and i said there's something sacred about science as well that it's the search for the truth there's something sacred so it turns out that there is an effort liana standish gave a talk uh, yesterday and we're trying to work together to see if we can get a standardized supply of ayahuasca that would be uh, something that the fda the food and drug administration the european medicines agency would continue to be would consider to be a standardized version that then could be taken through the system so the stage that we're at right now is trying to get uh, federal licenses from the Drug Enforcement Administration to manufacture. Leandra has a research license, but nobody has a manufacturing license for ayahuasca. Then another of the big questions is, should it be the tea? Should it be freeze-dried encapsulated ayahuasca? Should it be pharma-ayahuasca? What's the appropriate? Because it's going to cost a million or two dollars to get just the preparation of the drug with all the stability studies and how do you standardize it and ship it in different ways, so that's a big decision. I'm leaning towards the tea. Um, Dennis McKenna, I spoke to yesterday, he advised against the pharmawasca. He said that um, he didn't feel it was exactly the same, but earlier, just a few minutes ago, we heard Claudio Naranjo, and he talked about giving Leo Zeff, harmaline, and a low dose of LSD, which he called ayahuasca, which is very much, uh, and he described how incredibly valuable that experience was to Leo Zeff. So, that's our challenges.
0: And uh, th- there are no trials at the moment in the US, I know, but not, in, not even in Europe, not at all.
2: Not in Europe. Um, I think that 20 years, uh, Jordi Riba has done studies in Barcelona with freeze-dried encapsulated ayahuasca and brain scans, mm-hmm. and so he's done pioneering research, mm-hmm. and he feels that uh, it's very similar to the tea, but he's now no longer doing that research anymore. And so that line of research has stopped. Well, there, there's a lot of people with post-traumatic stress who are going to South America for ayahuasca. There's a large number of people that are going to Mexico for iboga for PTSD. You know, we're trying to work with MDMA for PTSD. So I think the very first work that was ever done with psychedelics for PTSD was a Dutch psychiatrist, Dr. Bastians, and he did work with LSD for what he called concentration camp syndrome. But LSD, ayahuasca, um, they don't, iboga, they bring things up that have been suppressed, but they're often very difficult. They don't reduce the fear. There's um, a warmth sometimes to ayahuasca, but also I think for severe PTSD, ideally we would end up starting, I think, with MDMA maybe one or two experiences, and then moving towards um, ayahuasca or psilocybin or LSD or something like that, and then finishing up with MDMA. But I think the work that's been done so far with ayahuasca for PTSD is promising. There's a lot of people that say that it's benefited them, but there are some people who've had um, difficult experiences that they haven't been able to process, and then they feel worse off. And then the other big problem is because a lot of these people are going to um, ayahuasca centers in Peru or Brazil, and then they come home. They—it's not that they have all this time for preparation and integration in their own towns. So I think there's a lot of people that are being opening up and, and making progress, but there's not enough emphasis on the integration process, and that's the problem. But it's promising.
0: So Maps uh, has done a lot of work about. Researching uh, MDMA and psilocybin. Yeah. How we, come we haven't
2: really done much with psilocybin? Oh, no
0: psilocybin. No, yeah, yeah. not, not uh, really. And cannabis. 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 Yeah, for PTSD. So Maps has done a, a, a looked has looked a lot on MDMA and cannabis, but yeah. how come you? Um, didn't start with ayahuasca, is it because it's more difficult to get the uh,
2: well, uh, okay. approval? Um, it's going to be difficult to get the uh, standardized supply. The approval is not going to be a problem if we have a standardized supply. But I would say you know, 15 years ago or so when uh, Jeffrey Bromfman was working on trying to get legal permission in the United States for the Unia de Vegetal, he was saying don't do scientific research because he wanted to say it's just a religious drug and that's the frame that he wanted the Supreme Court to think about it. And so I, um, out of deference, I said, okay, we're not gonna do anything with ayahuasca. Um, There was some interest in having even studies done uh, at the uh, National Center for Toxicological Research that would look at ayahuasca in the brain. And Jeffrey said, don't do that. And so I said, okay. So um, also MDMA is so resource, Uh, intensive I mean it's going to be 35 million dollars to make it into a medicine in the FDA you know 12 million or so in Europe so we haven't had the resources to do ayahuasca and we thought about doing observational studies and so this kind of relates this idea of people going for ayahuasca for PTSD but the we were going to do observational studies with either the UDV and the Santo Dime in the US and they felt that um, the UDV didn't want to do it, the Santo Daime wanted to do it, but they felt that their ceremonies weren't, they're more group therapies, so for severe PTSD that people needed more support, and then we would start bringing in more people we thought, and then it looked less and less like an observational study and more like a clinical study, so then we said forget the observational, we'll go for clinical, and then for years now we've been blocked at this idea of how do we get a standardized supply of ayahuasca.
0: Jeremy Norby, he spoke Mm. uh, recently at the press conference about uh, ayahuasca, the vine, the MAOI Mm. inhibitor. There is a tradition to use only that, and that uh, DMT is not always uh, needed. And uh, a lot of the healing properties are in the actual vine, and the Mm. vine is not illegal. So what about uh, just
2: using the vine? Well, I think there's a lot of potential there. So um, Claudio Narano, who just spoke, wrote a book that we've republished called The Healing Journey, and it was about different drugs that he's worked with different patients, and he had one chapter on harmoline. So I think there is a lot that can be done just with that. I think that, um, I like to say that we do political science. So one of the reasons to work with ayahuasca is because there is such a widespread use of it, and then if we can move towards medicalizing it, that will make it less likely there will ever be a backlash against the spread of ayahuasca. And also I think when you can work with uh, traditional scientists and clinical studies, um, you get research and then uh, the media reports it and then you do education for free to counteract a lot of people's fears. So I think that um, from a strategic point of view, I, I think our harmaline just by itself, because it's legal, could be very productive, but I think the addition of the DMT is uh, a positive benefit. And if we look at um, all these people that are on these indigenous cultures that have used ayahuasca that also have access to harmaline, they've ended up using the blend. More than they use Harmeline by itself. So I think there is a lot of potential. I, I would say that because one of the things that Jeremy Narby was sort of suggesting is because it's not criminalized, it's easier to do the research. But we are at this fortunate place now, 50 years after the backlash from the 1960s, where we can get regulatory approval. It's just a matter of following all the rules. and and having the money to do it. So I I personally would be more interested in doing ayahuasca than just harmaline, but I hope somebody does more research with harmaline.
0: And last question, why ayahuasca and not LSD or MDMA?
2: Well, we are doing MDMA. So, I mean, MDMA is first. So I think that, so again, political science. So MDMA is the gentlest of all the psychedelics. And one of our key ideas is that we need to, branch out and train a lots of new therapists and we believe that these new therapists would be more effective if they had done the drug that they're giving to people and because MDMA is more gentle psychiatrists and psychotherapists are more willing to volunteer to take MDMA so I think we're MDMA is the one that's the first moving through the FDA system I think it's because it's more gentle but also because it's easier to integrate the experience with MDMA and now that we're close its but at the same time we're at the hardest spot where we're expanding we have uh, never been so many studies and sites going at the same time you know every little mistake costs large amounts of money or slowdowns. so I think uh, we're sort of testing and it, improving it with MDMA and then I think the very next thing for me um, in terms of priorities would actually be Ibogaine uh, even more so than ayahuasca and so I think I, uh... because in america which is sort of the source of the world uh, drug war um, we have an enormous problem with opiate addiction and ibogaine is excellent for opiate addiction we also have from a political point of view the people that live in counties uh, like subdivisions of states where there's more what are called despair deaths and those are deaths from suicide alcoholism and drug uh... addiction and overdose that those uh, Counties tend to be more voting for Trump. So the question is how do we take those people that are being motivated by fears and anxieties and uh, hating or, or rejecting the other, how do we help them and spiritualize them at the same time? And I think that's, uh, I've gained for opiate addiction. So I think that's a really important contribution in the way America is set up right now. And also there is a lot of access to ayahuasca throughout the United States so people can get that and the police are not going after it. It's spreading incredibly without police repression, in part because I think the opiate addiction. And if they were to go after ayahuasca, people would say, why are you wasting your time on these people that are benefiting? Nobody's getting hurt. Why are or, you know, very few people are getting hurt. Why are you wasting your time? I think the police are vulnerable for that. But for Ibogaine, people have to leave America because it's legal in Canada, Mexico, but it's illegal in the U.S. So I think from a strategic point of view, after MDMA is Iboga. But we are also trying to build a new effort for um, ayahuasca. And I'll just say that um, the largest nonprofit pharmaceutical company was called One World Health. And they got $150 million from the Gates Foundation for drugs for Africa. Uh, the woman who started that Victoria Hale also started Medicines 360 which was for low-cost contraceptives for um, poor people and she got money from the Buffett family so she's since recently been benefited herself personally from ayahuasca and so she and I are talking about working together with Leanna Stannis to try to get a standardized supply to take ayahuasca through the FDA And so we'll see how that develops. I think um, my personal feeling, as I said before, is there's something sacred about science. So I think we can take a religious drug. It's really just molecules that have been uh, used in certain cultural contexts. And I think we can have the same sacred attitude towards science and towards healing as you do towards religion. So I do believe we can take it in different Westernized contexts and that would be good. And then it's a question of resources. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for uh, being on the podcast. And can you also say if people want to support MAPS? Oh, oh, yes, yes. If people want to support MAPS, so it's just uh, maps.org. And if somebody, for example, wanted to give us uh, $40 million, um, which some people have, um, we could probably make ayahuasca into a medicine. And they could restrict it. So you could say, or if somebody wanted to give us $40 and say they wanted to go to ayahuasca project. So when you go to the MAPS website, there's ways to donate, but you could also say it's restricted to whatever project you care about. So people could do that for Iboga or for MDMA or for ayahuasca, so basically maps.org. Also, we're setting up different nonprofit groups in other countries throughout Europe, so people can make tax-deductible donations to uh, nonprofits that we're associated with in Switzerland, in the Netherlands, in England. So if people are not from America, but they want tax deductions in their countries, They should just uh, write askmaps at maps.org, and we'll try to see if we have organizations in those countries that they could donate to. And so I have been recently offered um, large amounts of many, many millions of dollars from investors to try to um, help us go faster. And I've said no, I don't want investors. I think it's too important to, um, I think we're moving through the system easier because it's nonprofit drug development, but that means that we have to, rely on donations. But we've also started the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, which is a for-profit company. That's the, because if we sell MDMA, if we make MDMA into a medicine and then we sell it for a profit to make money then to spend uh, more on research, that we have to pay taxes on that. So we have the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, but it is only one investor, which is the nonprofit. So people make donations to MAPS, MAPS invest in the Benefit Corp, and then the Benefit Corp will Make these drugs into medicines. So, we have a story. We need large amounts of money now, but we won't need money forever because, unlike most nonprofits, we're talking about having a product at the end. So, it's like jump starting us to get these substances as medicines and then they'll generate resources for more research. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Have lunch.
0: I actually disagree a bit with Rick Doblin. Although I think his work is very important, I don't think an extraction of these medicines is as good as the original because you lose something. I mean, the iboga wood has properties that the extracted version, ibogaine, doesn't. Same goes with ayahuasca. You know, if you just use an MAOI inhibitor and some source of DMT and you get something called pharma It's not really the same as when you have the actual ayahuasca vine. And the vine itself contains a lot of healing properties. So uh, I don't buy it fully. Doblin says it's just molecules, but I disagree. And I'm not the only one that disagrees. Here is Rick Doblin versus
2: author and anthropologist and overall awesome guy, Jeremy Narby. My personal feeling, as I said before, is there's something sacred about science. So I think we can take a religious drug. It's really just molecules that have been uh, used in certain cultural contexts. And I think we can have the same sacred attitude towards science and towards healing as you do towards religion. So I do believe we can take it in different Westernized contexts and that would be good. And then it's a question of resources.
1: Science has a long history of taking the plants and knowledge of indigenous Amazonian people and giving little in return. The extraction never stops. And this is vampire science. Indigenous Amazonian people tend to say that those visuals are are not the essential part. There's the purge, of course. Uh, There are the revelations, the understanding, the ideas, not necessarily the visuals that are the important part. So more research is certainly needed to reach a full understanding of the ayahuasca brew, and veritable dialogues between scientists and indigenous Amazonians simply make sense. And besides, such dialogues would help scientists devamperize their relations with indigenous Amazonians on the sensitive subject of ayahuasca.
0: So, there you have it. Um, I still think Rick Doblin is a very good ally for psychedelics and I hope he continues his important work but I do disagree a bit with his views on on extraction so uh, that's that now for something completely different at this conference I managed to bump into the captain of the RV Heraclitus which is a legendary research vessel. Heraclitus, the Institute of Ecotechnics research ship, has sailed our seas for 40 years, traveled 270,000 nautical miles, sailed all over the world uh, except the Arctic and staged 12 epic expeditions. The RV Heraclitus has been the nautical home to hundreds of seafarers, young and old, from 50 countries. And uh, the research ship conducts conservation research and action missions protecting ecosystems and biodiversity and documenting the quickening cycle of decline in our oceans from ocean warming, acidification, sea level rise and extreme weather to coral reef bleaching, plastic pollution and overfishing. all that crap that human beings get up to and yeah so let's listen to my chat with the captain Klaus Tober and please note that towards the end of the interview he tells a story of identity that is well worth waiting for in my opinion so thanks for being on the podcast
3: yeah you're very welcome
0: so can you tell a bit about who you are and what you do
3: uh, my name is Klaus Tober. I'm currently involved in rebuilding a 25-meter ferro-cement Chinese junk here in Roses, Catalonia. And, uh, yeah, I'm, our ship is a sister project to Synergetic Press, actually, who is also present here. They are publishing a lot of books concerning the greater universe that is embraced by this conference. And uh, the idea of the ship was uh, science, art, adventure. Adventure, uh, because that's the nature of things, when you travel on a boat. Science, the ship was always involved in scientific studies. And uh, it's present here also because it has sailed up the Amazon in the early 80s. That was before my time. But it managed to sail up all the way to Iquitos and um, do ethnobotanical plant collections and studies yeah. in very early days. Um, yeah, and that's why we are here. So it's a fantastic colourful ship with a colourful history and uh, I'm working on giving it a very colourful future. Yeah. And maybe the greatest magic for me of the ship is that it's a fantastic bridge for culture. So so um, it is fantastic because it, you, you're always trying to master your environment on a ship. That means you, you, it's, a, it's a vessel that carries us in the vast universe and it's there to protect us. So we have to learn to live together and we have to learn to survive together. And um, So that's one challenge and that's a wonderful challenge. So it's group dynamics. And then because of its unusual look, it has this capability of opening doors into different cultures. It's rather odd looking ship. Uh, It's a floating rock. It has very unusual rigging. And um, so wherever we go uh, into posh marinas, into tribal communities, into fishing ports, into remote beaches, uh, we are kind of raising curiosity by the people that we meet. And everybody feels uh, entitled to make contact and ask. And, uh, And also when you travel with your own boat, you have the beautiful advantage of coming with your home. So you feel at home everywhere where you go and you can also invite people into your home for dinners, for performances, for evenings, for talks, for singing, dancing, whatever.
0: What are the future plans, what projects is the boat going to do?
3: Well, we want to uh, complete the ship in 2020. That's um, um, kind of an optimistic way of looking at it, but we think we are capable of doing that by the end of 2020 we want to sail to west africa and um, yeah look uh, our main through line will be it's called cultural uh, uh, um, oral history that means collecting stories of uh, coastal people of people that live along the river banks people that live along the coast that is very significant anthropology because our lifestyles are changing very rapidly the lifestyle of boat building of being a mariner of being a fisherman and uh, then of course there's always the magic of visiting cultures that you haven't been to and the ship has never been to west africa and i also think west africa is a bit of a forgotten part of the world because it's it's difficult to get to it's slightly dangerous, it's like war-torn and has a colonial history, It has disease, but it has also, it's also the origin of the diaspora of of the slave trade that happened between Africa and South America. So there's a lot of beauty to discover in traditions and dances and um, and um <coughs> whatever, cupware, the art, the painting, the drum making and so on. So we would like to follow that, but our The greater expedition will be from 2020 to 2025, the South Atlantic, West Africa, South America, Brazil and Argentina, then back across to South Africa, up to Namibia and uh, Angola. And from there we will sail into the Caribbean, hopefully um, before we will uh, stop at the Amazon. That's our idea and that's also why we are very interested to meet people here. We want to sail back into the Amazon and see what has changed and see what we can discover there and to the North Atlantic, like up to Greenland and Iceland. Many of those places the ship hasn't been to. So how, how is it financed? Um, well, it's usually through friends, people that are wealthy enough and happy enough to support the ship and expedition and people that understand the value of the ship, which is really like, for the individual and for the smaller or larger group that is involved with the ship to, to connect to the universe in a different way, do scientific studies in a very unusual way, like in a group kind of effort, and there um, yeah, are people that have a value for this, and people that have a value for the ancient art of sailing, which is also not really happening anymore. So we are dependent on the generosity of individuals and companies, and that's how we survived actually for the past 45 years, yeah.
0: Because the Heraclitus and uh, the Rainbow Warrior are two ships that are like legendary, I think.
3: (coughs) Yeah, you can say so, of course. Uh, I guess we are very different. And for example, we are now rebuilding the original Heraclitus. Yeah, we, we stripped the ship down to the keel and we are rebuilding on to the old keel of San Francisco, 1975. Why the Rainbow Warrior is a succession of boats, there's Rainbow Warrior 1, 2 and 3. So it's a different concept, but what we both try to do is maintain the spirit of the ship, you know, the spirit of exploration, the spirit of, you know, uh, having cultures meet and get together. And uh, I guess also exploring your inner self. That's why this so conference It's, it's more
0: OG. <laughs> <This coughs> Tell boat. me what OG is. Uh, original gangster meaning like it's <laughs> more... <laughs> It's more, it's uh, still the same, you know, it hasn't changed. Yeah, uh, well, Heraclitus, <laughs> one of his
3: famous, most famous sayings is you never step in the same river twice, so nothing is OG, you know, to us. And um, there's a beautiful Greek metaphor, it's about Theseus' ship. Theseus was the founder of Athens and he was a famous warrior navigator. So in his honor, after his death, they kept his boat and uh, always took it out at, uh, for his con- kind of anniversary of death or the founding of Athens, I can't recall that. But however, over the decades and centuries, they had to maintain the ship and they exchanged planks and helms and masts and sails and rudders until not a single piece of the ship was the original anymore. And another group managed to collect all of the old pieces. And when this moment has come that there was no original piece of the original ship left in the boat that went out anymore, the other guys put another boat together and the question that was asked is which one is Theseus bought which comes back to the question of um, identity who are you actually and who are we and are you still the same person that you've been yesterday and will you be the same person tomorrow and no so yes uh, we rebuilt Heraclitus onto the old keel and we tried to uh, maintain much of its old character and old hatches and portals and helm and everything will go back in and uh, it's for sure rebuilt by the same spirit you know by the spirit of kind of togetherness and um, you know uh, dreaming of great adventures you know or dreaming no small dreams yeah Uh,
0: thank you a lot for taking the time yeah thank you very much There is not only interesting talks and seminars here at the conference but also a lot of psychedelic art and music and other activities. Well, I, I want to say I think you ask excellent questions. I'm, I'm really, um, you know, the questions that you have are are just excellent. <laughs> the Natural Born Alchemist podcast with your host Alex, the man with the excellent questions. If you want to support Alex, that's me, then please become a patron. Show your support. Go to Patreon.com forward slash natural born alchemist if you do all of your wildest dreams will come true considering the presence of the indigenous people here at the conference i thought i'd play a track called pocahontas as the lyrics are somewhat related so uh, here is the track pocahontas from nameless archives demo album phone want to find out more go to namelessarchive.com Next week we'll be looking at sex addiction. Freedom is in the mind. Pocahontas is not Virginian. She's indigenous, not even an Indian. That's the problem with public opinion. I was a victim of the ongoing minion of how we...